Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on select Fridays in May, each film touches upon artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, kicking off with Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro on May 10th at nortonsimon.org. Support for Alaist comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years of Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, with over 200 films May 1st through 10th. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. It's Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. Coming up, we'll be talking with LAPD Chief Michael Moore about his surprise announcement Friday that he's retiring just a year into his second five-year term as chief. We'll be talking with him about the reasons for that decision and what he thinks should be the highest priorities for his successor as the head of the LAPD. But we begin with the 30th anniversary of the Northridge earthquake. We just heard Jacob Margolis, our reporter, talking about some of the challenges that we've had. And there's been tremendous progress made in making buildings safer and in better uh, gathering information about earthquakes and even providing some early warning in specific circumstances. Circumstances, But right now, I want to talk with you about your memories of that day 30 years ago. I'll begin with mine, but I want to hear from you. What was it like around 4.30 in the morning for you if you were within a range of the earthquake here in Southern California? Describe for us what that experience was like, particularly if it had a lasting effect on you, because the psychological effects of Northridge for many of us were quite large. We're at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722. You can also email us your memories of Northridge at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. We have limited time to do this, so I really need to hear from you promptly. So please share with us your memories of Northridge, how it affected you in the years afterward, and your thoughts about the quake now three decades hence. 866-893-5722. So for me, uh, on that Martin Luther King Jr. Day, uh, I was asleep in bed at uh, the condominium that my wife and I were living in at the time. And um, our place just started shaking so violently. I uh, woke uh, Kristen up because she wasn't really aware of what was going on, even as hard as the shaking was. And I said, uh, quickly, come with me uh, under the table. And we ran from the bedroom to the dining area of our condo, got under the thick wooden table. And as we're doing that, we're hearing the crashing of dishes and plates. It's very loud. And if you went through that experience and you had much of your your glassware um, break, you know what that sound is. It's really loud when stuff is just coming off the shelves. Um, uh, and, and then once the quake stopped... 
uh, there's no power. Everything is absolutely black. You can't turn on the lights because there's there's no light, and you have to be cautious of of glass that's on the floor. So, um, my recollection is I was able to uh, quickly get slippers on and run so that I I wasn't running the risk of stepping on glass. I'm not sure that that was the case for Kristen, and and so we had to be very careful and course, given my job, one of the first things I did was to call KPCC to our master control area. The only person who was in at that hour was our, our operator, the engineer in master control. And I called and I asked uh, Felton, who was on duty, who had worked the overnight shift. I said, what was it like? And he said, well, we had some shaking, but it doesn't look like we had any damage. It really wasn't that bad here in Pasadena. Uh, so I, um, after making sure, you know, we didn't have a gas leak or anything at the condo, I uh, went down to the car, uh, drove to KPCC at Pasadena City College at the time, and I was very concerned, you know, what if overpasses were down? What if there were power lines in the road? And so as I drove to work, I was driving much slower than typically. It's dark, of course, and I'm trying to make sure there's nothing in the road that's going to be a safety hazard because I've got to get to Pasadena and get on the air and and provide our listeners with coverage. I got there safely, uh, saw some of the damage and debris along the way, went on the air, and was on for hours. But I'll tell you what the effect of the earthquake was on me psychologically a little bit later. get to listeners to hear what they have to say about it. Let's talk with JP in Highland Park, and I'm particularly in hearing what he has to say because he was young. You were just nine years old living in Van Nuys at the time, JP? Yeah, so I was nine years old living in Van Nuys at the time, um, and I don't really remember the beginning of the earthquake. I just remember getting, like, abruptly woken up by my father. He just I, somebody, he just grabbed me. I remember him pulling me out of bed and then going and grabbing my sister. And as we're walking out of our house, I remember walking over our goldfish that had fallen over. Um, the shaking itself was, I didn't really remember. I don't remember exactly how I felt. I know it was a little scary, um, but the aftershocks were really what kind of freaked us out. Uh, we were hanging, we all went outside to the streets. Um, and then with our neighbors, with all of my, my friends from the neighborhood, we were just kind of scared. Um, when my mother was, my mom was working at the post office over in Northridge and she was finally able to get a hold of us after a bit. And that's when she told us she wouldn't be able to make it home anytime soon because, uh, they were asking people to move their cars out of the post office parking lot because some of the apartment buildings across the street had collapsed or fallen, fallen down on top of the cars and stuff. Yeah, Northridge Meadows. Yeah. Yeah, they were using they were using the the post office parking lot sort of as a makeshift hospital to get people out. Wow, uh, vivid memories for you as at the age of nine, JP. Thank you so much. I I was very young. Um, I think I was twelve when the Silmar earthquake hit. Uh, we were living in Inglewood at the time, so a fair ways away from the North San Fernando Valley where that quake was centered. 
But I still remember, as a 12-year-old, how much shaking we had in our apartment. And most of my friends didn't show up for school for that day. Northridge was that much worse, that much more intense. JP, thanks so much. 866-893-5722. Tony in West Plains, Missouri, says, I remember seeing it on the news from Missouri. And one of the things that stuck in my mind was the overpass of the Santa Monica Freeway that collapsed. I moved to L.A. in 2017. I tried to never get stuck under an overpass. Tony, that's uh, that's very true. And in fact, I remember talking with um, Dr. Lucy Jones about this. Uh, she was on the air with us, gosh, that's 30 years ago, talking that day. And, and um, you know, we talked about the risk of being under an overpass in an earthquake. And she said, I try to avoid it whenever possible. Sometimes you simply can't. It's bumper to bumper traffic. You don't have an option. You're going to be under the overpass. Uh, you just hope the odds are in your favor. 866-893-5722. Lauren in Laurel Canyon, thank you for joining. Please tell us what it was like for you 30 years ago today. Hi, Larry. Great to talk to you. I thought I'd insert a little bit of levity in what otherwise was a Good. dramatic situation for all of us in Los Angeles. I was a sixth grader at the time, and my mom ran in to get me, and then we ran over to my brother to get him standing in the doorway until the shaking stopped, and then my mom announced to us that she had to pee. So we all screamed, no, don't go, and shined a flashlight on her, watching her pee until she could come back to us, and we still laugh about that. <laughs> That's a family memory, uh, a bonding experience out of out of what was obviously a frightening experience. That's Lauren and Laurel Canyon, 866-893-5722. Laura in Studio City, you're on Air Talk. Your memories of Northridge. Laura, are you there? Hi, go right ahead, please. Hello? Yeah, go right ahead. We got you. I lived lived in an apartment with, um, and I slept in a canopy bed at the time, and the apartment had big, heavy metal closet doors. If, during the earthquake, these doors came off and hit the canopy, saving, the canopy saved my legs. I would probably be paralyzed. Oh, my god! If it was not for this canopy bed. And I hung on to that canopy bed for so long. I mean, I had it for years after, way past its time, because I remember it just, those doors came off, the thud of the doors hitting the canopy, and my husband grabbed me and pulled me, but I would have been paralyzed because I was closest, and it just would have hit my legs. That's intense. Laura, where were you living at the time? uh, Off of Riverton and Coanga, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Laura, thank you so much. Um, so, so much of the San Fernando Valley was just hit tremendously hard. My ex-wife was living in Granada Hills at the time. And uh, I think it was Granada Hills. And her house that she was living in actually split in half. Um, and, and, um, what just, you know, was not habitable afterwards. Um, I knew, um, another woman, Kay St. Germain, who, um, was a performer, stage performer, had been a singer with bands and she actually had, had, um, done some things with us at, at KPCC years ago. She was living in an apartment, I believe it was in the Toluca Lake area. 
and um, bookcases came down on her, and she was trapped and couldn't get out for a significant period of time. She actually moved away out of Los Angeles because of how terrible that experience was. You know, for some people, this was was a life-changing experience. Jennifer in Hawthorne, good to have you with us. Your memories of the Northridge quake. Hello. Um, nice to talk with you, Larry. Um, I was living at the time in West L.A. We woke up. My roommate was yelling at me to get in a doorway. And so I went to my bedroom, to my closet doorway, and things, you know, the basket hit me. Um, I could hear dishes falling, um, picture frames falling off that fell on, like, flashlights that we had thought we stashed around the house for something. Um, and we had a TV fall off the stand. Um, I worked at the time in Hawthorne, um, and I had um, a flight instructor at a student who lived right in Northridge, and his home was condemned. He was an artist, had lots of original artwork that he was allowed a very quick amount of time to run in and pick out, you know, just minimal items from his home. Wow. And then everything else was condemned. He wasn't able to get into his home after that again. So many just um, terrible and displacing experiences. And um, at Cal State Northridge, as you might recall, the campus was severely damaged. The Oviatt Library was uh, essentially destroyed and had to be totally rebuilt. Uh, There was a parking structure that collapsed. And uh, my wife was uh, doing uh, her speech pathology training. The, uh, they used actually what had been a private home that was on the, the edge of the campus. It was badly damaged in the quake as well. 866-893-5722. Andrea in Northridge, good to have you with us. Your memory of the Northridge, Northridge quake 30 years ago. Well, I'll tell you what, Larry. This was... Uh, one of the most important experiences of my earthquake experience life. I live in uh, Northridge, and I've gone through three earthquakes. The Kern Valley, which we called Tehachapi in 52. Mm -hmm. The Silmar, where we were evacuated in 71. And then the 94 earthquake at Northridge. I was one of the administrators at Northridge at the time. And what I did after I found, after my family was safe, I got in the car, I took my camera, a notepad, and went to Northridge because that was my responsibility as an emergency response team member. And I took notes of all of the buildings and the conditions and which ones had fallen off their foundation. And I wrote a note in my car so that the police wouldn't think I was in the administration building because I was noted for working late. And uh, I met the Kern County search and rescue team that brought down teams of horses and riders to patrol the campus and make sure that there was uh, nobody on campus that was, uh, you know, driving 
ceiling getting in the buildings. And we- Andrea, I know we have so many more calls. Uh, I just I, I want to thank you for sharing that because I can only imagine what that was like for you arriving first thing in the morning on the campus at CSUN and seeing the devastation of that. And so many recently constructed, like the Oviatt Library was not that old, as I recall, and to see the extensive damage of that. And, you know, it, it points out what we learned about engineering for earthquakes, um, things that, that weren't known at the time much of that campus was built. Let me share some emails. Giselle emailed us, I was living with my parents in Northridge in my third year of UCLA Medical School. Growing up in L.A., we all know the noise, the rumbling train, the roar, the slamming. It woke me abruptly at first in annoyance on a holiday weekend filled with last-minute wedding-related shopping, but then quickly followed by terror, the monstrous wave of movement, the shaking and tossing that threw me back down off my feet each time I tried to escape. During the first pause, we all stumbled out of the house with books, bottles, shelves, paintings, glass crunching and cutting under our bare feet. All in pajamas, on our driveway, we stood in shock. My little sister clung wide-eyed and silent to my mother. My father had neighbors helping him find and shut off the gas valves. Water sloshed from our pool into our house. The smell of leaking gas mixed with the scent of liquor from the fallen cracked bottles from my father's bar. Giselle, you're a heck of a writer. Wow. You really, I can see that. Sarah in Monrovia emailed us. I wasn't here, but my sister was. It always surprises me she couldn't reach the door handle next to her bed and that she couldn't get out of her bed as it was shaking so violently. She said she felt like popcorn. She was at Whittier College. John in Palm Springs emailed, I was awakened by the worst shaking I've ever felt in my home near the coast and went out to my car to get information over the radio. I drove to work eastbound on the Ventura Freeway and we'll never forget topping the high point out of Malibu and looking down on a San Fernando Valley completely in the dark. That's John in Palm Springs. Jennifer in West Hollywood, I was up. I held on to the bathroom doorway for dear life. Finally, the electric wires outside the window flashed green and the power went out. I think I'm not the only Angelino who wore sweatpants to bed after that rather than pajamas. And Leslie emailed, On January 16th of 1994, I was well over nine months pregnant with my first child. The doctor prescribed an induced labor, and we were scheduled to go to Huntington Hospital the next morning, January 17th. When the quake hit, I was happy because I thought I was finally going into natural labor. But the crashing dishes falling out of the kitchen cabinets quickly snapped me into reality. All the local hospitals had damaged and were closed. I couldn't get in anywhere for several days. Finally, January 21st, we got into a hospital in Tarzana. My daughter was born by C-section. These stories are just wonderful. This is absolutely great. I'll tell you what, I'm gonna, we're going to continue this in the second hour. We're going to come back and take more listener comments on the Northridge earthquake. So Lynn in Glendale, Jimmy in Long Beach, Mark in Lamert Park, Dave in Canoga Park, you are all on the line. If you can call in for our second hour today, please do so because I want to hear your stories. There's some very compelling ones. We'll come back. We'll read more emails. That's next hour. We'll continue this segment. But when we come back, LAPD Chief Michael Moore is with us on Air Talk on LAist 89.3. 
Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis. Or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. Larry Mantle with LAPD Chief Michael Moore, who surprised many of us with his Friday announcement that he's retiring just a year into his second five-year term as Chief of LAPD. Chief Moore, good to have you back with us today. Larry, it's great to be here. Good morning. Before we get into the reasons for your retirement, how vividly do you remember uh, being on the force 30 years ago for Northridge? Oh, very clearly. I was a sergeant working at the time and I was living up in the Santa Clarita area and the earthquake struck and it, it uh, created a fair amount of damage for their home. Uh, but no, I remember you know getting my wife uh, over uh, to uh, her mother's house and then myself and a, another partner uh, getting in our private vehicle and finding our way to, uh, to work. And it was uh, quite an ordeal. And unfortunately, that morning also was tragic for you know, Angelinos on a number of different levels of death and destruction. But we also lost one of our own officers as he rushed, as a motor officer, he rushed uh, in in the aftermath of the, the quake to rush in to help, to be that, uh, to be that individual that would uh, be part of the solution and tragically uh, fell to his death uh, on the 514 interchange. Because Clar- the, the Clarence uh, Wayne Dean. Yeah, which is named for him now, as I recall, and that overpass collapsed, as I think it had done during Silmar as well, if I recall. I I think that exchange had two major uh, uh, problems just decades apart. So, Chief Moore, um, you've given us the reason, the ability to spend more time with your daughter, to move to be closer, daughter. Um, Beyond that, what are the issues with the job, the job that led? you to decide to to shorten your tenure? Well, I just thought it was the right time. The uh, My initial term was to end uh, in the first months, first few months of Mayor Bass's tenure and to have her in that position a year ago, as, as we are in today with identifying an interim and, and uh, selecting the next chief that will lead this organization forward. Uh, I didn't feel it was the right time and I thought that it would be, uh, uh, it would position her in a time as she's getting oriented in her inaugural year. A year later, she's had a tremendous year. She has built, uh, she's began the process of rebuilding this organization, of, of backing the men and women, improving their morale, the equipment, uh, our, our resources, our facilities, and her success also with Inside Safe and on a number of other initiatives that uh, at that, that trajectory and at the same time, uh, visiting my daughter and limiting those exposures for the last six plus years and the desire to have Sunday night dinners and to see her and be with her, be closer to her, my wife, 
uh, those, as I said, are the two most important people in my life. This path, 42 and a half years in this business, uh, it, it the demands will never end, and they shouldn't. Uh, this is a it's a great profession. It's one that I've dedicated most of my adult life to. Uh, but it's also nice to know that when it's time to, to hand that off to the next generation. And, and I have a, a department that I'm quite proud of. I see uh, capable and highly qualified men and women all throughout the organization. And I have every confidence that I leave at a good time when this organization, its momentum, its strategic initiatives, its progress. We just closed a year with a second year in a row of a reduction in violent crime. Uh, we're getting back to uh, the, the success we saw uh, just prior to the pandemic. And yet we have other challenges in front of us. And I'm, but I'm confident we're in the right place at the right time for me to hand this baton off. I look forward to doing that. Look forward to, to uh, seeing more of my wife. Uh, she's, Cindy has been uh, steadfast in her dedication, support of me, the countless hours and times away from, uh, from her, uh, away from our, 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 the rest of our life, if you will. Uh, so it's uh, it's the right time. It's a good time. And I just uh, thank Angelinos for all their support of me. And I ask, ask for their continued support of this great department. Are you are you concerned at all? You've been doing this for, uh, what, 40 some years that this is going to be such a big change to going to a job that's all from a job all consuming. It's essentially 24-7, except, you know, when you're when you're sound asleep and and not being involved, not being at the center of things are. I mean, obviously, some parts of it you're not going to miss at all. You'll be relieved. <laughs> are there parts you will miss? Oh, I'll miss the people. And it's often said in our profession as people dedicate their lives and they change into the next, uh, you know, next volume is that they don't miss the job. They miss the people. And I know I'll miss the men and women. I'll miss telling their story. I'll, I'll miss the ability to to brag about the great work that our men and women go out and do every day. Uh, and at the same time, you know, I, as uh, you know, as I said on Friday, there's this hourglass of, of so, so much sand and there's more in the bottom than the top for me uh, at my age and where I'm at. I'm good. I'm healthy. Uh, you know, we, have, we all have our aches and pains, but I want to value the, uh, the next 10, 20, 30, whatever God gives me uh, in my life and spend it with the people who have uh, given me so much and, and support of me and, and made as many sacrifices as they have. I think it's now time for me to shift that focus. I'll miss this profession, but I also intend, you know, I'm not going to find another chief's job. I'm not looking for anything like that. But I also imagine that as we build our home and as we get oriented into uh, our new uh, our new residence and we spend time with our daughter and uh, in a different part of the country, that there'll be opportunities within this profession for me to have a voice. Well, consultancies are always available for a big city chief like yourself. We saw Bill Bratton, who looked like he was going to retire, but of course went on to a whole other career after Los Angeles. Are, are you comfortable sharing what part of the country you're moving to? Yes, I've not made, uh, despite people who would tell me I should, uh, moving to Tennessee. Uh, that's my daughter uh, is uh, completing her PhD there. Uh, she's a mental health professional. She actually works with uh, the Metro Nashville uh, as a mental health counselor with uh, with John Drake, a wonderful leader in the Metro Nashville Police Department. Uh, she has a mental co-op there. Uh, and so we uh, I intend to join her in that area, a few miles away from her home, just long. I'm a helicopter parent of sorts, so a little bit of uh, a little bit of distance, but uh, not too far and the ability to have Sunday night dinners. They've got eight inches of snow right now. And uh, we uh, we talk daily and frequently. I look forward to having those moments uh, in, in person. <laughs> well, well, true. Eight there's, inches there's of snow. Some aspects of it uh, will be an adjustment. We're talking with uh, LAPD Chief Michael Moore about his retirement, which he announced on Friday. Do you have a definite uh, final day? 
Yes, 29th of February. Uh, the, uh, it's a leap year this year, but I uh, fully intend to work uh, alongside uh, the people of our organization. We're going to sprint to the finish. We have a number of initiatives going on. There's, uh, this is always a, a busy department meeting the needs of Evangelinos. So I intend to stay uh, until that point. Uh, and also support the Board of Police Commissioners as they go about their work now in identifying an interim chief as well as they begin the process for the who will follow me as in the next uh, in the next tenure. What, what's your analysis of the number of people within the department, high-ranking officials, that you think would be qualified and are temperamentally suited to be chief? Could you put a number to that? No, because as soon as I put a number to it, I remember when Chief Bratton was asked and he provided names and, you know, and I was a deputy chief. I wasn't going to ask names. I well, just no, but, but as soon as you put a number to it, people start feeling, okay, then the next question, you know, you have uh, you have so many deputy chiefs, you have so many commanders, you have so many captains. Well, why, why haven't you yeah. included Who's all of them? Who's not? Yeah, yeah. Who isn't yeah. worthy? And, and this is, so what I will say is that I am confident that we've got a great bench. We've got uh, organizational leaders that have endured, have gr- they've risen up through a period of time, one of the most challenging times in our existence. Not just the pandemic, but the civil unrest, the aftermath of George Floyd, the f- reforms that we've engaged in, the building of trust that we see in our communities. And I know that they have an appetite to continue to lead and to ascend further in this organization. So I am confident that uh, as I prepare to leave, the, the count, uh, commission and the mayor uh, is going to be impressed by the quality of the applicants from this organization. And I look forward to uh, the next chief uh, continuing the path of this organization as a leader in 21st century policing. So it sounds like you would have a preference for someone internally if 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 you were to make the choice. You'd, you'd prefer to have someone from within? I, I think, I'll, again, I'll keep my uh, counsel with the Board of Police Commissioners and with the mayor. This is going to be a nationwide search, as as it should be, as it has been each time for the last, uh, you know, since uh, for at least 20 years. And it, I think the the, the city uh, is owed, um, the department owes the city and the mayor and, and the elected officials owe the city a look across the entire country for leadership. And we have great police leaders across this nation. I see them. Uh, at various uh, conferences and, and boards that we meet on and, and discuss the issues of today. Uh, and at the same time, so we, we should reach out, and those that are interested should apply and should pursue this position. It is an iconic position in American policing. So I understand the appetite to come here. Uh, it's upon the commission and the mayor to then assess and make that selection. There's a lot of voices. There's a lot of identities. There's a lot of individuals and stakeholders that have their their perspective of what the next, who the next chief, uh, what that person should be, what they should represent, and how they should move forward. And again, that that complexity of that uh, is something that is going forward. I hope to have a voice in it, as my predecessors have, but at the same time, I intend to keep my okay. counsel with uh, those that have that dis- the most difficult decision uh, that I think they'll make this year. Uh, I want to ask you, in just real briefly, what what is the toughest part of being the chief of LAPD that you think is is distinct to this department, this city? What would you say is the biggest challenge that maybe someone coming from outside the department might be surprised by, or or, or um, that it would hit them particularly hard when they experienced it? Well, Los Angeles is, in my view, the most cosmopolitan city in the world. We have uh, every identity, community, uh, every representation from all natures of of human existence. So that's the city of 4 million in a region, in a county of 10 and in a region of 20. 
and the city in all its complexity uh, with the size and its breadth and its, uh, if its commitment to address the needs of that, of that community has this agency called the LAPD, along with all the other departments that is comprised of men and women that uh, should be reflective of those communities, should be uh, uh, informed, should be uh, highly competent and, and experienced. And in all that, those inner workings, there's a lot of voices, a lot of stakeholders, a lot of complexes, a lot of challenges. So walking into that from you know, entirely on the outside, is it doable? Absolutely. We saw Bill Bratton come in here in 2002. He took a department, I believe, a much different department at a much different time, uh, and he moved us forward. I was a commander, a staff officer at the time, and, and uh, Chief Bratton uh, you know, promoted me to deputy chief, and, and uh, you know, we, uh, he was very effective at the time. But you know, I also saw that when Chief Bratton left, uh, and I competed for this position, was one of three, and Chief Beck was appointed, and, and I, again, worked under, under his leadership and learned and, and, and will always respect his friendship and mentorship that he was the right chief at that time. And I believe that when I competed for the job in 2018 uh, and uh, was appointed as, as a 57th chief, that, again, there were outsiders that applied, uh, but it was a decision of Mayor Garcetti that I'm grateful for. So I think each of these are a different time and place, and finding the right candidate at the right time for the right challenges of the moment uh, is what is before the commission and the mayor. But what I'm hearing from you is that responding to all the different stakeholders, the different voices that you have, critics within Los Angeles or people that are demanding certain things in the department, you see that as a particularly L.A. phenomenon? Well, I think the L.A. is iconic, both in its standing across the world, both good and bad. We represent the very best in policing, and unfortunately, we've also had some of the darkest moments in this profession. And that 150-plus year history, the uniform I wear, the badge I wear, the history of what our dark moments have been, and the lasting impact that still has on communities is something a chief needs to be mindful of. When you walk into the, uh, the conversation is that the voices and the eyes and the perspective around the table are reflecting upon 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 years of our history. And so that's not impossible for an outside police executive to come in and learn and acquire. And if that were to be the choice of the mayor, it would have my full support because whoever the, the mayor ultimately picks in this process uh, is – it is so critical that, that, and I have every confidence, that they will be successful. We'll continue with LAPD Chief Michael Moore. February 29th, his final day on the job as he retires and relocates. We'll talk with him about a variety of other issues in policing when we come back in just one minute on Air Talk. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle with LAPD Chief Michael Moore. His regular visit with us, I have to say I'm going to miss having him come in and join us regularly. I look forward to our conversations. And uh, the chief, I believe, uh, has has one more with us before he's done. So this isn't an exit interview technically, but <laughs> okay. we'll, uh, we'll do that next time. Uh, chief, I did want to ask you about, just because the timing of it, as much as anything else, two internal affairs officials have claimed that you asked them to investigate the mayor after she was elected over a scholarship that she got at, at USC for graduate study. You've denied that. Did this play any role at all in, in your timing of your decision to retire? 
Absolutely not. It's a it's an it's a lie. It's it's a it's it's what's shameful about it is. Unfortunately, we have officers and personnel within our organization that will become disgruntled, uh, uh, dissatisfied, uh, maybe uh, feel that they're affronted by something I've done or the organization has done to them. And what's really unfortunate here is that such a salacious and, and absolutely baseless uh, allegation has has played as long as it has in in the you know in our news media, if you will. This the affairs does not investigate anyone anyone's actions outside of the department. So the very basis that I would ask or anyone would suggest or the department or themselves, anyone within that area of the department would conduct it. Secondly, the department has no role or responsibility or even right or authority to investigate anything uh, of the such that was described here. So it's, uh, it did not play a role. I did, I will say I did call and speak with the mayor and apologize that this news uh, that a member of my organization apparently has made such a salacious remark. And I look forward to, you know, the unfortunate part is that you can never unring the bell, but uh, this is without any merit, any basis. But unfortunately, this will be, will be of little, will gather little public interest. But what it does say, and I'll said this last Friday, members of the media have a responsibility to evaluate sources and motivations in them determining what is conveyed because they have a standing. You have a standing. I respect your, sta your standing. We said off the air. I respect your standing in the media because your voice and what goes on as an NPR station is measured. It's balanced, uh, and it's not. It doesn't. It's not scandalous, and it's not meant to just inflame. It's not tabloid journalism. It's something that you can rely upon. Well, there that influences every other media outlet with a bit of credibility that to a person in a community looking and listening says, well, if it wasn't true, they wouldn't publish it if it's not accurate. And just to continue to perpetuate this, and I, I'm disappointed in the LA Times, uh, but I understand that, well, they felt like they had to do that because somebody made it. People make baseless allegations against individuals, including myself and others, on a regular basis. So do we just, all that just, that all is deserving of an institution uh, such as a major news outlet in Los Angeles. My view, what goes on each of these outlets should be balanced, should be measured, and should be uh, reflective of the fact that at times uh, there's not just disinformation, but there's purposely weaponizing journalism to undermine the faith and confidence in government or its individuals. Yeah, you had a chance, though, to respond and to say, well, this is internal affairs doesn't even do this kind of... I mean, you, you were able to list off all the reasons why you felt this was not credible and, and that you had not done this. You, you don't think that, that that weighs as heavily as the allegations that were made against you? I think that uh, the, what I find interesting is that two months later, we're still talking about it. So it didn't weigh into my decision at all. It didn't, it didn't cast any daylight between the mayor and myself. We both know that it's entirely baseless. We've worked, each other, we've worked with each other long before she was uh, elected as mayor. Uh, she was a person who would call me for, as an elected official, as a congresswoman. She would call and speak with me, and, and I would speak with her about issues of criminal justice reform, uh, the George Floyd bill, for instance. These are all before she even aspired to, uh, to this position of being the mayor of this great city. So we've enjoyed a relationship of trust and confidence in one another, and uh, I believe that what I did apologize for is that as a chief of police, such a scandalous thing hits the front page, and, and whether we like it or not, it has a taint. 
it leaves a, a, a it leaves a taint on a person's standing and, and for that I regret it but it, no it did not play a role in, in my timing or my decision or uh, in her support of me we're talking with LAPD chief Michael Moore about his retirement on February 29th I want to talk about city controller Kenneth Mejia's audit that he did of of helicopter flights in which is very critical of the amount of money spent and and claiming that there was too much uh, time in the air for non-high priority incidents or even transportation flights or ceremonial flights. Um, What it shows is that 39% of the time was high priority incidents. The rest would fall into other categories. Uh, How much of that is um, general patrol using helicopters um, to deal with the fact that, you know, on a per-mile basis, this department has far fewer officers than other major departments? So I look forward to us. uh, We're formulating our response now uh, to address each of their points. And I respect the controller's position and and his charter authority to conduct these type of of reviews. I'm also uh, reminded of his campaign uh, against the the existence of the of LAPD at times, and it's it's merit at all. Uh, and I think that his uh, report uh, is colored by that bias. Uh, the and I use that uh, I make that judgment because, for instance, even his rudimentary analysis of the amount of time uh, the helicopter or airship is overhead portions of the city and tying that to part one crimes and suggesting that that those uh, that that those two percentages should align perfectly is naive and uninformed uh, the time we spend over South Los Angeles is higher than in other parts because the violence per square mile in that area has those units responding to reduce response time and to provide information, critical information to responding units, including our first responders, such as fire, as to circumstances of violence and dangers that are posed to the community, as well as to the responding officers. So there are a number of shortfalls in that report. I stand by the airship, uh, the operations of our aviation uh, professionals, their safety record, the use of those resources to augment what you've indicated, a very small workforce covering large, expansive areas. Additionally, there's so many other tasks that they're involved with, for instance, in, in allowing us as a department when instances of people attempting to flee from officers, from flee from apprehension, the presence of an airship overhead allows us to go into what we call a tracking mode. Ground units can disengage. We can track the movements of this individual safely and, and lessen the risks that these individuals pose. We also have an aviation plan and the presence of them. So should we have or when we have an earthquake, and I ask all Angelinos to improve their readiness for this, but there's an aviation plan that incorporates that fleet to pick up critical uh, decision makers and to ensure that we can transport them safely into this region uh, as our transportation systems are impacted. The controller is calling for um, significant documentation of, of all the hours that the helicopters spend in the air. And I'm wondering, you know, what's your sense of the cost of that, what the benefit of that would be? Is that a, is that a realistic request? Well, we certainly want to provide as much transparency as possible. And if there are current data systems, there's limits if it wasn't, matters weren't envisioned as to how many times we circle overhead a location, or if there's some other data point that he's interested in, I want to strike a balance with him and provide what's reasonable, what's within our grasp. And if we need to expand our systems, our data capture systems, which is not uncustomary, un, un, 
unusual, and Mm -hmm. as we find questions that we don't have answers for because of the limitations of the manner in which we capture the data, our commitment is we're going to lean into that. We're going to try to find is there a reasonable way with a cost-benefit analysis that we can uh, answer the questions that are being posed. We, we will remain professional. We'll remain on the uh, and hold the high line of answering uh, reasonable and, 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 real, and uh, needed questions. And, but we're also going to debate the findings and the recommendations that are there because on such a critical function of public safety, our airship operations are known throughout the country. Now, are there other ways in which to go about this work? The use of drones, the use of aerial systems that may be more portable and more, more responsive at an area level. We see other agencies engaged in that. And we're going to dig in and look and okay. continue to review that. I, 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 was, I mean, this raises so many questions. I was wondering, for example, it showed the West Valley, an area that's comparatively low on crime compared to other parts of the city, with a lot of helicopter activity. But I was wondering, well, is that a case that maybe there are fewer officers assigned per capita, more officers are in higher crime areas, therefore you get more helicopter response? When, I mean— this is very complex, and but, I was just but, wondering about it. But let me you know. say that the first analysis that he made that was a misjudgment is he included all crimes. When you look at petty thefts, that's a part one crime. A burglary is a part one crime. A murder is a part one crime. A robbery is a part one crime. So when you took the basic of all part one crimes, the most amount of part one crimes are petty thefts. So it automatically distorted the data burglaries along the Santa Monica corridor, uh, the Santa Monica mountain range, south of, of uh, Ventura Boulevard, through the Mulholland Pass, to the, nor- to the northern boundary of West L.A., are up significantly. We use airships to patrol those areas because putting cars in those areas yeah, in the canyons, would yeah. be impossible to yeah. cover. And so there's utilities for, these, uh, for, these, for this tactic. It's critical importance for the officer's safety, and I stand by the work of, uh, and the professionalism of what I think is the finest aviation uh, municipal police uh, division in America. We'll continue with LAPD Chief Michael Moore. We have a few more minutes with him. When we come back, it's Air Talk on Atlantis 89.3. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. Larry Mantle with LAPD Chief Michael Moore. We're at 866-893-5722. If you want to get in a quick question for Chief, I did want to talk with you about, you know, with war in Gaza, concerns about uh, terrorism within the United States. The FBI several weeks ago issued its concerns over this. Is the department doing anything more to prepare for the potential of people acting in response to the war. Yes. So we know that prior to October 7th and the uh, terrorist attacks and the resulting war involving the Israeli uh, government and and, uh, Gaza and, uh, and Hamas, that even prior to that time, the threat of domestic extremists and violence associated with that was heightened. Now moving into this uh, this war and this conflict, and the uh, we see the uh, reality is that those same extremist groups are in, given an opportunity to capitalize on the energy and the frustration and the and the, the fear and the, uh, and the protests and demonstrations for their own nefarious purposes. So what our efforts have been uh, immediacy of of, of 
October 7th was to increase the visibility, the outreach, and the engagement with all houses of faith, not just the, our Jewish institutions, but also our, our Muslim and, uh, and Christian uh, uh, faith leaders and, and their houses to ensure that we uh, communicate clearly that there is no place for hate in Los Angeles and no rationalization or justification for targeting an individual uh, regardless of their beliefs uh, and somehow tying it to the, just, to the rationalization or justification because of the actions of, of, uh, of Hamas and its terrorist acts or the actions uh, by the Israeli Defense Forces in defense of Israel and the uh, evaluation of whether you know, the merits or the measured of that effort. Now, that outreach and engagement has also been coupled with ensuring that we're putting investigative resources on the increased instances of hate and hate crimes and that we're bringing uh, and identifying those responsible and bringing them before the criminal justice system. I am encouraged by our U.S. Attorney, Martin Estrada, as well as by the commitment by D.A. Gascon and our city attorney, Faustine Soto, that they will aggressively prosecute uh, anyone involved in hate crime associated with or attempting to associate some rationalization or justification by this current conflict that we see in the Middle East. We're, we're seeing a, a dramatic increase in anti-Semitic incidents in Los Angeles. Is, does that translate into investigations by your officers? Absolutely. And the increase is, is both in anti-Semitic as well as anti-Muslim. And so the uh, and in both instances, we have uh, or launching investigations on hate crimes that have occurred. And we are uh, pursuing and will arrest and prosecute those engaged in that work. Our, for instance, as a ready example, we saw uh, targeted protests that occurred at a, uh, at a uh, Jewish leader's uh, home, private residence, back on Thanksgiving Day. That is an active investigation. There's an assault with a deadly weapon uh, where a woman uh, struck someone with a, with a stick, uh, as well as acts of vandalism and also the prohibited targeting uh, protests of a residence. All those investigations, let me assure uh, our Jewish community and, and those that were engaged in that action. Uh, we've not forgotten that. Uh, we're meticulously going through the video, the countless videos that were gathered, the other physical evidence that is there, and I intend to see that uh, that that information is brought before the appropriate prosecutor. We're working with the district attorney's office as well as the city attorney's office, and I believe that we'll be announcing uh, charges or, or at least uh, our presentation of those cases in the coming weeks. We've had several incidents where protesters have closed down roads or, or bridges as a result of, of protests. Uh, CHP, I know, taking responsibility in many of those cases. But what is your view about, um, you know, when is the time to remove protesters from a public right-of-way? So on a freeway, that is absolutely endangering the lives of those protesters as well as the motorists. The, those freeways are no place for pedestrians to be in any, in any manner. A roadway and a city roadway is a different uh, animal, I believe. I think that what we ask for is that civil disobedience in the sense of going on to an, a permitted or unpermitted march and standing an individual at an intersection, say, in downtown Los Angeles in front of City Hall. Our efforts is to facilitate that. We recognize the impact it has on the surrounding public, but we believe that, uh, that those, those expressions done in a, in a peaceful manner uh, is affording people their First Amendment rights 
and that there's a balancing act as far as the inconvenience that's associated. Now, that protest and activity in front of the Hall of City Government, I think, is an appropriate place. That is the courtyard, if you will, of our great democracy, you know, the public square as our founding fathers envisioned. However, doing so at, say, a commercial shopping center and interfering with both commerce as well as others that are attempting to go about their day is a time and place issue. All right, Chief Moore, thank you. We have one more meeting with you next month. I'll look forward to it. Thanks very much. Thank you, Larry. LAPD Chief Michael Moore, his final day prior to retirement, February 29th. We'll be talking with him about a week or so before he exits the office. It's Air Talk on LA, at 89.3. Much more to come in Hour 2. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. We had so many terrific calls in our first segment today. Remembering the 30th anniversary of the Northridge earthquake, we're going to resume that conversation later this hour. Uh, some of you who were waiting to come on the air when, when we ran out of time had fascinating stories to share. We'll talk about that later this hour. But right now we're joined by our civics and democracy uh, correspondent who has also covered criminal justice here for LAist, Frank Stoltz, uh, to talk about uh, the retirement of Chief Moore, who just joined us on AirTalk for his regular visit. We have one more visit scheduled with the chief next month. Uh, Frank, this surprised so many of us to get the word Friday. He had said he wasn't going to complete the second five-year term, but to leave just a year into it is a surprise. And a little bit less than a year into it. Yeah, he was supposed to stick around for two or three years. Uh, that was sort of the unspoken agreement, really spoken agreement, because he had said that at the beginning, to then hand off to uh, somebody else who would then do a lot of the planning for the 2028 Olympics. That was sort of the reasoning behind it, that you'd want to get somebody in well ahead of the Olympics so that they would be you know, best prepared for that. So it's a it's a big surprise, actually. And you, you asked him about whether or not these allegations that he ordered an investigation into the mayor around her scholarship at USC uh, played a role in that. And he vehemently said absolutely not, uh, that he enjoyed a good relationship with the mayor. Uh, by all outward appearances, he did enjoy a good relationship with the mayor. So I suppose we take him at face value that he wanted to spend more time with his family. He's moving to Tennessee. He's building a 
house there. Uh, that's where his daughter lives. And uh, so uh, it, it's, it's a you know, uh, more time with your family is, is the oldest excuse in the book. But, I, you know, I, we have to take him at face value. Well, the other thing is that Mayor Basque, when she's been unhappy with people like appointees to city committee, you know, she doesn't um, soft pedal around that. No, you know, she, she doesn't. Just yanks the person off. So it's not like she's, um, uh, you know, partake, puts a lot of energy into making things look like other than that. So, you know, she was alongside him at the Friday news conference. And this didn't appear like the case where she's lost, where someone is, has lost her confidence. Yeah. I should note that uh, he was not very well liked by the rank and file. Uh, so whether or not that played a role in it, I don't know. Uh, but the, the union has been a sharp critic of him, uh, in particular, ever since he took a knee during the George Floyd protests uh, in 2020. He actually took a knee with the protesters uh, who were, uh, you know, demonstrating against the murder of George Floyd. Uh, and that just infuriated the rank and file. They really saw that as a betrayal, uh, practically, of the badge because he, he was essentially siding with protesters. You know, the sa- at the same time, you know, that's one of his huge uh, really mistakes of his administration is how the department handled those demonstrations. Uh, you know, there, there were three different after after act, so-called after action reports or and, and independent reports that found that the department was totally unprepared for that type of thing, that the that officers had not been trained on those non-lethal 40 millimeter guns that they have, you know, in years and that they were shooting indiscriminately at people, that there were, you know, many Many, many unlawful arrests. So uh, and and, it and talked, some significant injuries and and sig- significant injuries and uh, and and that the command structure was totally broke down. That people didn't know who to report to or who was really calling the shots in the field, which was really surprising under Moore because he was known in the department as this tactician, this guy who really knew how to command in the field. You know, and when the moment came, when these giant protests came, you know the department. Completely broke down. Well, well, and you know, going back to the the L.A. riots, we we had um, a total. You remember, Daryl Gates was at an event that night. the The review of the LAPD's handling of that was so scathing that you know the idea was that decades ago that was going to lead to a change in how the department responded to large scale. Um, people taking to the streets, either in peaceful protest or acting out violently and destructively. Yeah. And as we saw, this continues to be a challenge, clearly. Well, and I think this is this is the thing with the LAPD. You know, we we kind of think about the LAPD and the in the post Bratton era and the and the and the, and the pre Bratton era. Bill Bratton, of course, the former LAPD chief who was there from about 2003 till about 2010, and, and a really sort of a guy who who helped change the department you know, and and began a cultural change that you know focused more on relationship uh, policing and less on what they call warrior policing, uh, which, you know, really separates the uh, police from from communities in terms of the style. Um, and, uh, you know, we talk about the cultural change at the department and the and, and how that's such a hard thing to do in policing in general. You know, and, and it's true at the LAPD, you know, to change the thinking of rank and file police officers so that they see themselves more as people who are, you know, in the community, working with the community 
community and, uh, you know, not just the facts, ma'am, you know, and, and put the cuffs on. Uh, I wanted to read just a portion of the L.A. Police Protective League, the union statement about the chief leaving, uh, because interesting. So we we commend Chief Michael Moore on his 43 years of service to the LAPD and the residents of Los Angeles. His tenure was marked by unprecedented changes in the law enforcement profession. We appreciated Chief Moore's open door policy that allowed the LAPPL to deliver the perspective of the rank and file on various issues. Although we did not always agree, we had a respect and productive relationship. We wish Chief Moore and his family the best in his retirement. Um, and then the statement goes on to urge the mayor and the police commission to select an individual committed to rebuilding the ranks of the department, reducing violent crime, and improving morale. So there's no explicit criticism of this, as you'd expect in an exit statement sure. by, by the union. But when you say that morale needs to be improved, it gets to the point that you're raising, Frank, that there was friction. There was friction. And uh, and, and the taking of the knee was a part of that. Uh, but generally, uh, people didn't like Chief Moore. Uh, oh, and discipline, too, and, was an issue. And, right. Discipline was an issue. And also, he was a micromanager. You know, he was somebody who, you know, went through just about every rank in the department. Um, you know, of all the people at the department, really for the last 20 years, he's been known as the guy who who knew the most about the LAPD, the ins and the outs, the intricacies, the Byzantine structure that it is. And um, he loved to micromanage. And um, this was one of his, you know, real faults, according to folks who worked with him. Um, at the same time, you know, he, he knew what he was talking about all the time. You know, you should see his performances in front of the police commission. I mean, you know, somebody would ask on the police commission would ask a question and he would go into this, you know, 10 minute, you know, response with, you know, the fact and the figures and, and everything else. And so, um, you know, that's the kind of chief he was. But again, I'm, I'm going to swing us back just a little bit into this, you know, the, the idea of trying to change the culture of the LAPD and of policing in general. We're still very much in, in, the, in, in the progress of, you know, creating departments that are more 21st century, so to speak, where they are just operate differently in their communications and their interaction with with communities. Well, and and there is that ongoing challenge, uh, as you know, Frank, because this is this has been throughout the LAPD's history a challenge. The number of officers per size of the city yeah. means you know sort of the LAPD was allowed to operate for decades with a very heavy hand because that was sort of the trade-off. People didn't say it explicitly, but I think it was the de facto trade-off that officers could uh, go in and respond heavy-handedly to make up for the fact that they were that they had lower personnel numbers. And we saw what that wrought um, with with discord in the city, a lack of confidence in the department. But we still see that same per capita number of officers. Well, even not, less. Not, yeah, yeah but, not where, where it is with other cities, even as you're talking about the need for community policing and relationally oriented police. Well, that takes time and that takes people. It does. And we're in a, you know, that's one of the, 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 the huge challenges facing the department now is the recruiting crisis. You know, we're down to about, <clears throat> excuse me, about uh, 9,000 officers, you know, from 10,000 just a few years 
years ago. So, you know, the folks who want to defund the police and shrink the size of the police department, it's happening on its own because fewer people are attracted to policing now for all sorts of reasons. There are other jobs, but also, you know, you, you get beat up a lot in policing now in terms of, you know, the public image. So that's probably contributing too. Do you think, Frank, this is still a, a highly desirable job to lead the LAPD? Oh, of course. I mean, it's it's the it's the I mean, it is the 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 creme de la creme. It's the it's the job that you want in policing, either the, you know, New York City police commissioner or the chief of the LAPD is the job that you're that people want. So the power uh, involved, you're uh, just such a powerful figure. Well, and, it, you know, I mean, it's a story department. You know, it's all the TV shows about yeah. the LAPD. You know, uh, everyone in the country that has any you know interest in leading the be- best police department in the world or What's seen by many as the best policing department in the world will want to come to L.A. and replace more. You you think it's more likely that 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 uh, someone within the department is hired, or do you think this is the time the city will look outside? Well, this is the big question. Will <clears throat> excuse me. Will uh, the mayor? Uh, go outside or will she go inside? You know, there are two people uh, that I'm going to mention that were finalists the last time, you know, who have gone on to other things that may come back and try to be finalists again this time. The San Francisco police chief, Bill Scott, who was a deputy chief for South L.A. here, you know, and now in San Francisco, may very well apply for the job again. The other guy is uh, Bobby Arcos, who heads the district attorney's investigations unit. Uh, he was also a deputy chief at the LAPD before he went on to that job. And those, there's two names right off the bat who are former LAPD guys who may come back to the department. All right. Uh, and, of course, George Gascon was at one time a candidate to be chief of LAPD when when he was a top-ranking official before he ended up going in a different direction with his career. I mean, you know, this is going to be the great parlor game now at City Hall is who's going to be the next chief. You know, will she uh, will will the mayor appoint a, a woman? You know, uh, is it time for uh, the first Latino chief? Uh, you know, who's it going to be? Yeah. Uh, And it's a department that what is over half Latino uh, on the rank and file officers. And of course, the city is half Latino. So, so, uh, you know, uh, there were a couple of candidates who have dropped off the radar, but uh, there are many others that are out there just. But, you know, any deputy chief and there are probably about uh, 15 of them at the department believes that they're going to be the next chief. So you'll, you'll get a lot of those applications. And what happens is the applications go into the personnel department. They narrow it down to six you know, formally qualified or a minimum of six formally qualified candidates could be 20. They forward all those names to the police commission. The police commission narrows it down to three and they forward that that list to the mayor and then the mayor chooses from those three. If the mayor doesn't like any of those three, can always say, hey, I need more names. Mm -hmm. But it's really a mayor driven process because the police commission, of course, is appointed by the mayor. So she'll tell them who she wants. Yeah, you can call it a weak mayor model in Los (laughs) Angeles. But when it comes to the LAPD, it's a very strong mayor. Well, this is the Larry and you know this one of the most important decisions a mayor makes. Uh, because, as you say, it's a relatively weak mayor position, but this is you know, the fire chief, the police chief, a few other positions where the mayor really wields almost sole control.
Frank, thank you as always. Appreciate you coming in, yeah. talking about the future of the LAPD under its new leadership coming up. Any word on who the potential interim will be? Uh, no, but uh, they'll probably serve for, I, I think folks are talking in the range of six months uh, search for a, for a permanent chief. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Frank, thanks so much. Sure. We look forward to your continuing reporting, civics and democracy correspondent, and for many years prior to that, criminal justice reporter here at LAist. When we come back, we'll talk with NPR science correspondent Nell Greenfield-Boyce. Her first book, Transient and Strange, Notes on the Science of Life, weaves personal stories of her life, her family, with some of the science stories that she finds most fascinating. We'll talk with her about her book when we come back in one minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Hair Talk on L.A. State 89.3. Coming up later this hour, we are going to extend the conversation we had to open our program today as we observe the 30th anniversary of the Northridge earthquake, which did uh, billions of dollars of damage, uh, caused uh, many injuries, fatalities as well, and had a huge effect lasting for years, from the engineering of new buildings, retrofitting of ones that were at risk, and of course, in our personal lives, caused some significant changes. We'll talk about that and hear your calls coming up in just a few minutes. But right now, we're so pleased to talk with science correspondent for NPR, Nell Greenfield-Boyce. Her first book is titled Transient and Strange, taken from a Walt Whitman poem, subtitled Notes on the Science of Life. Nell, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me on the show. So let's let's talk a bit about the melding here of your personal life, your your son and daughter, uh, your husband, and a, a genetic disease that that he's dealt with. All of this woven into the book. What led you to make such a, both a personal but uh, also book that explores some of your favorite topics of science? Well, I've been reporting on science for about 30 years, <laughs> a lot of that at NPR, and I love science, and I think about it a lot. And so as personal things happen to me, invariably, I find myself thinking about them through the lens of science, whether it's, you know, sort of comforting my kids when they become, you know, sort of scared of tornadoes, or whether it's, you know, dealing with aging parents or thinking about preventing genetic disease in children. So, you know, it, it's just sort of how I see 
see things. And I thought that in some ways, the science I uh, explore in the book often offers a sort of metaphorical resonance with whatever personal events are happening in my life. Plus, it's just, you know, an enjoyable thing for me to do to write a little differently. And I had a lot of fun uh, writing this book. And and I hope that it would be interesting to people. What was that like for you? Because as you say, as a reporter for NPR, or even before that, the other publications you worked for, you're really covering the scientific issue itself. You're not highlighting what it is you're necessarily really into about it or how it relates to your personal life. Was was there a hurdle you had to get over in, in, in being personal as you are in the book? A little bit. You know, some people have been shocked at how personal the book is and how honest I am about some things. And they say, like, well, aren't you scared what people will think of you? Or, you know, how how, how could you do this? But, you know, I find that even though I am a pretty reserved person, and certainly in my reporting for NPR, you know, I try to keep the focus on the story. I'm not really involved in it. But it turns out I don't I don't mind so much. I don't mind talking about some of this stuff because most of the things in my book are pretty universal themes, I think. They're yeah. stuff that people can relate to. Um, the only difference is when I think about some of this stuff, I, I, you know, make ties to science, which maybe lets people see it from a little different perspective. Well, and, and let's talk about, as a mother, how you relate to your kids on science. Your your kids come across extremely bright in the book and wonderfully communicative. But I I, I wonder about um, how you sort of have, have shared your view about what science means in your life and, and how they can rely on it in certain ways. How has that conversation unfolded? Well, the main thing I do as a parent is just try to get out of their way. I mean... <laughs> I think that kids are little scientists. That's kind of a cliche, but they really are relentless in their desire to understand their world and, you know, just sort of experimenting and figuring things out and mucking about. And, you know, they have a really admirable lack of preconceptions or assumptions about things. And they just sort of take the world as it comes and they try to figure it out in a way that is very scientific, I think. And, you know, for me, some of what's been challenging as a parent is just that some of the big questions, the kind of questions that, you know, we don't um, think about as adults so much, the, the kinds of questions that we can sort of go through our day-to-day kind of ignoring or kind of like pretending aren't there, they haven't learned to do that yet. <laughs> and so as kids, they sort of look to you for some guidance about like, well, what does it all mean? And like, you know, how am I supposed to live my life? And and I, I think it's challenging. And, it you know, I think that in some ways, like, we're all still trying to answer those those questions. We're talking with NPR science correspondent Nell Greenfield. Boys, Transient and Strange, Notes on the Science of Life. Explain the title, please, and how you looked at the poem for inspiration. So the the title comes from a poem by Walt Whitman in which he was writing about a procession of meteors that had appeared um, in the 18, um, you know, 1860s or so. And, you know, he wrote Year of Comets and Meteors, Transient and Strange. And, you know, even here, one equally transient and strange, you know, I, I flit through you hastily, soon to fall and be gone. What is this book? What am I myself but one of your meteors? And, you know, most of the things in the book, these different essays, you know, whether they deal with, you know, the fears of my children or, you know, growing older or, you know, illnesses, they are these events that are sort of, you know, passing events, you know, temporary things, but they were kind of unsettling. And and I love the poem and those lines because... They sort of make it clear that, like, we observe the universe, but we also are part of the universe. And, and we're just as mysterious as many of these mm-hmm. things that I report on every day, whether it be 
you know, a distant galaxy or a black hole or a tornado. Um, we're right in the mix. We're, we're not distant. We're not removed from this stuff. Uh, now, let's let's talk about how you approach the audience as an NPR journalist, as as the host of a daily program on a member station for nearly 40 years. There's certain things I have in mind about the NPR audience, and it does affect how uh, I talk about things on the program, at least in the conversations I have with acquaintances who work in other media. I think it's a little bit different because we assume a degree of, of interest in our listeners, of curiosity that isn't necessarily there across all media. So I wonder, as, as you're taking a complex topic and explaining it for an NPR audience, what are you thinking about in terms of, of their uh, prior level of education or interest in the topic, the way that you're going to present it in this format? That's an interesting question. You know, um, NPR used to do all sorts of surveys of its audience, and they would sometimes show us that data so we could get a sense of who our audience was. And I remember one of the questions on the survey was something like, how interested are you in learning about stuff of no practical significance to your life? <laughs> and the answer was really high. It yeah, was like 85 uh, percent. We were like, yeah, we want to know. Like, it doesn't matter if it's not going to be used in our day to day. Like, we just want to know how does the universe work? And, you know, what? what color is Neptune? Like, why does anybody care about that? It's not something you're going to use. It's not news you can use. But people want to explore. They want to learn. And not just the facts, but also the experience of what it's like to be a scientist and how scientists think. And, you know, just part of this whole big human project that we're all we're all a team on. <laughs> and so I tend to assume, no matter what the subject is, that if I'm interested, chances are other people can be interested too. Just a matter of figuring out what it is, is the central thing that drew me to something. And once I sort of understand the emotional content that people are going to be compelled by, then I think about like, well, what are people likely to know, whether it's about DNA or whether it's about the history of the earth or the origin of the moon. And, you know, the fact is people have a lot of knowledge that they can draw on, whether it's something they learned in school or something they learned even in a movie or a documentary. And so I don't usually find it difficult at all. I, I find that people are quite interested and people are quite capable of learning about all kinds of things, even stuff that might seem to be, you know, really yeah. esoteric particle physics, for example. Well, and, and in a program like iHost, there's even time to nerd out a bit. It's tougher for you because you, even with your longest stories for the news magazines, you do have time constraints. But, but I'm sure there are things that you just find particularly interesting, you really dig, and you, you want to share that with listeners. Yeah, and, you know, I have some pretty idiosyncratic interests, and I just uh, shamelessly indulge them. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> and, and I think a lot of reporters at NPR do, too. I mean, we have one reporter here who's seriously into naked mole rats. And, like, anytime <laughs> there's a new scientific advance involving naked mole rats, she's all over it. And, like, we can do that just, you know, secure and safe in the assumption that we are lucky enough to have an audience that's engaged and is willing to give things a shot. And, like, maybe you didn't know that you wanted to hear a naked mole rat story today when you woke up, but it turns out you do. <laughs>
We're talking with Nell Greenfield Boyce, NPR science correspondent, author of Transient and Strange Notes on the Science of Life. Uh, Nell, I also wanted to ask you about how science and how we consider it has become somewhat politicized. Uh, there are those who are who go beyond skepticism and have a degree of cynicism about scientific research and ascribe findings to ulterior motives and the like. Uh, healthy skepticism, I think, is, of course, good, but but it can go beyond that. On the other side, I think there are people who so revere what is a current conclusion in science now, they perhaps forget the scientific method and that everything is being challenged and reviewed doesn't necessarily hold up in multiple studies and the like, that there is also a degree of transiency within science. And I wonder if you would speak to sort of where where your work fits into this uh, perhaps cultural divide over how we consider science. Yeah, that's an interesting question. So, you know, I've been reporting on science for some time and, um, you know, several decades at this point. And all I can say is the entire time I've been a reporter, um, science has been um, uh, potentially entangled with politics in all kinds of ways. Um, It affects uh, the way science is done, the science policies that are set. It affects, you know, how people try to marshal their arguments uh, for, you know, one issue or another, whatever it is that's of value to them. And, you know, science is right there along with everything else um, in the public discourse. And people will use it and believe in it um, based on what they're trying to achieve. And that, at least from my perspective, has has always kind of been true. And mm. it's one of the reasons I try to report on science um, just like any other beat, you know, like there are people who report on sports and people who report on politics and people who report on education. And, you know, we all accept that those um, areas of life are subject to politics and subject to different points of view and sort of conflicts and things. And I treat science just like that. Um, it's 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 got its own values, obviously, and it's got its own um uh, sort of philosophy. And, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for the scientific method. Um, but I also am aware that, um, like anything that involves humans, <laughs> uh, it, it's, it, it needs some uh, skeptical reporting. Yeah. And, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, I try, to, I try to do that as part of my daily work. Uh, Now, Greenfield Boyce, NPR science correspondent, her new book, Transient and Strange, Notes on the Science of Life. You've been doing this long enough, I think you said three decades. I'd be curious what you've seen. One of the things I noticed when I started, and this goes back even a decade longer, uh, we're a few blocks from Caltech, where our studios are. and So I regularly uh, do segments with Caltech scientists. When I started, there was a real reluctance to engage with the audience of you sort of well, people wouldn't understand what I'm doing. It's, it's you know, basic science, not necessarily applied. People aren't. And it didn't take long before uh, many of the Caltech great minds realized that they really needed to tell their story, that that was part of funding, getting grants, getting public support for the work. And we saw a huge shift to where scientists now, I think, are so much more interested in talking about what they do. Is that something that you've witnessed over the course of your career? 
I think so. And I also think that they have a lot more avenues for that kind of communication, right? Through social media and through podcasts and through blogs. I mean, a lot of scientists, you know, have a sort of sideline being science communicators, and they spend quite a lot of time directly engaging with the public in a way that just wouldn't have been possible, you know, back in the day when, you know, you'd have to go through a newspaper or something like that. Um, so I do see that. And I think that it it's still, though, among some scientists, I think it's seen as sort of like an extra. Uh, a lot of scientists don't really consider that like a part of the gig. And I think some people um, still there might be kind of a little bit of a prejudice among some scientists about like, well, why are you spending time doing that rather than, you know, writing your grant applications or doing another experiment? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think that, you know, scientists, generally speaking, are an enthusiastic lot and they are doing their research in large part because it brings them joy or because they feel a sense of mission. And so I think those those feelings, you know, inspire them to want to share it with people. And, you know, I have talked to scientists who sometimes do stuff that's so complicated, like their own family doesn't even really understand what they do. Yeah. <laughs> so when they finally get a chance to, like, talk to somebody who's interested and who wants to know, they sort of, like, go overboard. They're so excited that somebody wants to actually listen to all the minutiae about their, you know, robot that they built or something. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think it's more common now, for sure. And I think that, um, you know, they understand the need to get the public support. And also they understand that as, you know, folks who've oftentimes received a good bit of public funding, you know, oftentimes I speak with researchers who feel, you know, an obligation to mm -hmm. to let the public know what it is that their, you know, tax monies are going to. I think also the public is uh, better informed on so many issues of science in the past because the work of people like yourself, and that's probably um, allayed some of the concerns of, of scientists about talking to a lay audience about the work that they're doing. Nell, thank you so much for joining us and talking about your career, also about this book that really weaves personal experiences of yours, your family, uh, your, your daughter and son and your husband, uh, into the work you do, Uncovering Stories of Science. Thank you so much for sharing it. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Transient and Strange, Notes on the Science of Life, a collection of essays of the things she finds most interesting in the world of science and also ways in which they've affected her quite personally. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. I want to hear from you, your memories of the Northridge earthquake 30 years ago. We were inundated with calls and emails in the first hour. We'll pick up where we were at. Uh, if you were waiting on the line when we ran out of time, if you're still listening, please call in right now and join us. I want to get your comment on because we had some terrific ones standing by when we hit the clock and had to move on. 866-893-5722. Back in 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, The Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez, inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price 
After escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk on LA at 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. We thought 20 minutes would be enough time to hear from people in the first hour about the Northridge earthquake. And our, our senior producer, Matt D'Angelo, and Tony Amir furiously shaking his head, no, 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 we didn't think that. Well, um, <laughs> I underestimated how many important and terrific stories there would be about the Northridge earthquake 30 years ago today. And let's start with a call from Dave in Canoga Park. Dave, thank you so much for joining us. Share with us your memories 30 years ago today. Sure, sure, Larry. I think my uh, experience is a bit different from most people who are awakened uh, from bed with crashing in their houses and stuff. I was actually out driving at the time when the earthquake hit. I had a 7.30 flight out of LAX. I was on my way to the flyaway terminal in Van Nuys, and I was on Sherman Way. At 4.31 a.m., I was under the Van Nuys Airport tunnel on Sherman Way when I felt like I had four flat tires in my van. My, I was thrown all across the lanes until I emerged on the other side of the tunnel. I saw the telephone poles and light posts whipping and flashes in the distance and storefronts, uh, the glass shattering. And in my early morning stupor, I actually thought that we were being attacked. Mm -hmm. I thought we were being bombed. Um, I had no sense of that it was an earthquake until I stopped and I realized that this was a very bad earthquake. So I turned around to go back to my family, and, of course, the tunnel was dark. I didn't know if it had collapsed, so I put my brights on, and I just hit the gas and gunned it, hoping I could get back up Sherman Way. And as I did, I saw dogs running wild because block walls had fallen down. Um, people were streaming out of apartments that were falling apart, and they were wrapped in bed clothes. Uh, office buildings, facades were coming down, desks, uh, chairs, uh, papers were flying all over the place. Rubble was all over Sherman Way, which I was dodging. And, and other cars, there were, I was one of the few cars on the road, but occasionally they would, a car would fly through an uncontrolled uh, intersection. So, of course, I had to be very careful driving back up. But... The, the, the strange thing was it was silence. I heard nothing. All I heard was I was in my van, and I saw the city actually falling apart before my eyes as I drove, as I raced back home. So, uh, yeah, it was a very, very different experience. And what it left me with, you went under what, what our impressions are, it left me with the power of nature. That I mean, nature shrugs and man's best uh, uh, buildings come tumbling down. Dave, I, this is a wonderful call. I, I was just saying off, off air, um, your call just got more interesting and, and your observations. I mean, an incredible thing that you witnessed as that was happening that she said those of us in bed uh, didn't. We only had our immediate environment, yet you saw what was happening to the central San Fernando Valley. Have you written about this at all? 
No, I haven't. Um, I actually, well, I wrote something and I called it Silence of Deadly. And no, but I haven't actually written it up. I'm just thinking for for your family members and just as an important, because you had such, uh, there were so few people on the road at that time, uh, a very important perspective, what you saw to share. Dave, tremendous call. What a way to start. Thank you so much. 866-893-5722. Gabby and Lakewood says, I was about four years old. I was abruptly awakened by my dad, who was wearing tidy whities He carried me out of the house like a football. Our building was tilting back and forth. All the neighbors were outside half-dressed. That's Gabby in Lakewood. Ian in Woodland Hills, I was 19, living in the third floor of a UCLA fraternity. All the electricity was out. I remember driving around on a motorcycle trying to get supplies from 7-Eleven. People were just taking food and leaving dollar bills on the counter. Ian in Woodland Hills. Uh, Let's see. Naomi in Lincoln Heights. I was 16 at a sleepover right next to LAX. My friend had to wake me. I slept right through it. (laughs) I I guarantee you, for many of the people that morning, it would have been impossible to sleep through, depending on where you were in the region. Uh, Let's see. Um, We also have... in the valley, nobody talks about the parents' uh, plumbing uh, uh, and toilets. There was no plumbing or electricity in Northridge for weeks. That's Lorraine in the San Fernando Valley. And in Rancho Mirage, I remember my bookcases tipping over. I took my dog for a walk. It was so incredibly serene because you could see all the stars in the sky. What Anne's referring to, of course, is all the power being out, and it was just pitch black. Um, as though you were out in the middle of the desert. Let's talk with uh, Tom in Studio City. Tom, I understand you were living in Van Nuys 30 years ago. That's right. Uh, when the first jolt hit, it quite literally threw me out of bed, and I had cats sleeping on the bed, and they scattered, which some of them I didn't find for a few days. But uh, my first recollection was going outside, even though you, they say you shouldn't. But uh, I looked up and just, was amazed at how many stars I could see. It's like because no more light uh, by the electricity. That it's like wow, all these stars I've never seen before. It's just amazing. Wow. Uh, wow. But but then I got a call. I had to go into work. I worked at a Holiday Inn, and people just had to be evacuated. They had to check out, so I had to go behind the desk and check people out. And even though they say, well, you know, are you not going to you're not going to charge us? I says, well, we'll worry about that later. And, and there were like file cabinets that fell over. I had to like climb over to get to the desk. And the later that building was condemned, oh, so wow. I was sort of out of a job. But the bright spot in that is it got me a new career in film and television. Oh, good. I'm glad there was a positive that came out. I was I was going to ask Tom if you had people who, whose houses were damaged coming in, but since the hotel was so badly damaged, obviously that was not a source of, of housing for people. Tom, thank you so much. 866-893-5722. Let me share some emails that we have uh, from listeners. Dave in San Pedro emailed, when the earthquake hit, my co-worker and I were driving across the Vincent Thomas Bridge in San Pedro on our way to work. 
I cannot imagine, Dave, what that was like. My car started shaking. I thought I had four flat tires. The radio went dead. The lights on the bridge went out. It was very eerie. I was thinking, what is this, an alien invasion? A minute later, the radio came back on and uh, told us about the earthquake, which certainly made more sense than an alien invasion. Dave, you like our earlier caller talking about... um, that it seemed like we were under attack as opposed to an earthquake. And I and that's understandable because when you're in a car, you don't feel the shaking in the same way. As you said, it was like you had four flat tires, but not how you think of an earthquake shake being when you're on solid ground. Steve in Mount Washington emailed, I'd recently moved into a top floor loft in the toy district downtown. I spent the night at my girlfriend's house in Venice and experienced the quake standing naked together in a doorway. When I was able to get back downtown, there were beams laid across my bed. Appliances had been tossed several feet from the walls. I'd learned that uh, several 10-foot, 4 by 6 beams were against the wall next to my bed to be used to build an elevated platform. Stephen Mount Washington. Joan in Pacific Palisades. We were parents in Chicago, lifelong Chicagoans, with a 22-year-old son, a graduate of SC who lived in Park La Brea. A phone call came in the very early morning with the shaken voice of our son asking us to turn on the news and to understand he's okay. He maturely explained he needed to find someone to stay with as there was a gaping hole in his wall through which he could see outside side. As I asked him if he still wanted to make L.A. his home, he said, this is the price you live to pay, uh, you pay to live in paradise. 17 years later, we moved here ourselves. Joan, thank you so much. Uh, let's see, so many good emails. Carolyn in Pasadena, my house built on bedrock, sailed through with flying colors, but a good friend was a nurse at St. John's in Santa Monica, living in Thousand Oaks. I remember her description of the eeriness of driving the Ventura Freeway in utter darkness, arriving at the hospital and finding the pipes had broken. Much of the building was flooded. She told of the horror of opening doors, not knowing if she would find a living patient or a dead body. Uh, Stephanie in Claremont emailed, I was living in Pasadena at the time, and I turned on the radio to KPCC immediately after. And I remember hearing Caltech's Dr. Lucy Jones coming on to say that there is the potential of it being a foreshock. This made me nervous, thinking we could have another quake in the next day or so. Thankfully, we didn't have a larger quake. No, but we did have a lot of aftershocks. And we had a caller in the first hour talk about how difficult it was dealing with the aftershocks. And for me, it was very difficult. I had trouble sleeping for close to a year after the Northridge earthquake because there were so many aftershocks in the days and weeks after. And it re-triggered my fight-or-flight instinct that I felt from, from the first, the major earthquake. And it was like my body started processing it all over again in the same way to the same extreme it did the first time. And it's very strange. This is all, you know, not rational, but it's like a physical response to uh, the aftershock and and that triggering a physical response. But, um, uh, you know, I, I, I know many people for whom that was not the experience that they had but it certainly was for me. We'll continue with more listener calls when we come back at 866-893-5722. 
We're remembering the Northridge earthquake of 30 years ago today, when many of us who lived here in Southern California were awakened at 431. We'll be back in just a minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle as we remember the Northridge earthquake of 30 years ago. Kelly in Costa Mesa said the morning before, my girlfriend and I rearranged our bedroom, including where our child slept. I think that saved her life. We afterward lived out of a van in Van Nuys in a large parking lot. That's Kelly in Costa Mesa. So many huge uh, experiences from people who went through the Northridge quake. Jimmy in Long Beach, thanks. I know you were waiting with us in the first hour. Thanks so much for your your determination. Good to have you with us. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Uh, it literally shapes who I am as a person today. I was I was eight years old. We were living in Anaheim on the second second story of our our apartment building. And my, I would have slept through it. I'm a sound sleeper, but my mom grabbed me by my ankles and yanked me out of bed. So I flew feet first onto the ground, and I could see the blinds bouncing from the window and, and the power lines exploding outside. The most terrifying thing to wake up to. Mm-hmm. And then my cousins lived in San Fernando, so for the next few weeks, every few days, we would go out there to give them water. And One of the walls of, the, of their house had fallen out to the side into the driveway. All the backyards there were pretty much one big backyard with just piles of bricks every so often. Wow! Wow! So now, so now I am obsessed with birds. With with birds, did you say? Yes. How? They could they could fly whenever Earth, the Earth starts to quake again. All right, Jimmy. Thanks so much. They they can indeed. Eight six six, eight nine three five seven two two. John in South Pasadena. You also wanted to mention birds. Yes. Can you hear me? Yeah. Go ahead, John. Okay. My my most enduring memory was uh, I was lying awake about four o'clock that morning. Yeah, I was living in Altadena, and I've never noticed birds singing before until that morning. And I noticed how talkative these birds were. There was all kind of chatter and tweeting and all these different bird sounds. But at 4.15, it all stopped abruptly. It's like someone turned off a switch. And it was kind of eerie. And 15 minutes later, that quake hit. So I think the birds may have sensed something because they, they just cut it off. Wow. Well, I know certainly uh, animals can be sensitive before humans pick up on movement of the earth. That would have been, um, you know, quite early, 15 minutes. But but who knows what happened? And that must have been very eerie to have that experience. John, thank you so much. Sinclair in Laguna Beach, please share with us your experience of the Northridge quake. Um, hi, Larry. Um, just like your earlier caller, Jimmy, in Anaheim, I lived in Anaheim on the second floor of an apartment on uh, Magnolia near the 5 and the 91 freeway. You may have been a neighbor of um, his. We had, yeah. <laughs> um, after we had um, determined that we were in the middle of an earthquake, we uh, got out from the door jam against all uh, advice and looked out uh, onto the swimming pool area and saw seven-foot approximately waves um, emanating from the pool. From side, it was, the water was sloshing from side to side, and uh, just like uh, high surf, um, no mm-hmm. different. 
And then uh, we uh, heard the sounds of popping outside. We looked around and we saw the white arc lights and, and uh, you know, of uh, 100 transformers exploding. Wow. Um, we, uh, in our apartment, all of the um, blinds were violently go- swinging from left to right. And we just uh, found ourselves unable to stand, really. So we were crawling all over the place. Um, uh, just, a, just a surreal experience, but, uh, uh, you know, um, not, a, a, not a frightening one. It was just a curiously, yeah. um, you know, strange experience for yeah. family. So, so strange. Yeah, it's just like, what's, what's happened? Just, it, it, uh, the term surreal gets used so often, but there, there are definitely aspects of that. Sinclair, thank you so much. Mark and Lamert Park, thank you for joining us. Mark, what's your memory? Well, Larry, piggybacking on what one of your callers just said, what woke me up about two minutes before, the dogs in the neighborhood, the dog next door to us on Hubert Avenue, the dog behind us on Cherrywood, and the dogs were going crazy. And I woke up and went and checked on my two little boys who were six and four, and then the earthquake hit, and I snatched them off the bed. I reached over and pulled the mattress over us with superhuman strength, and then I went up the hallway after the initial shock and handed one of my sons to my mother. She fell back on the couch and we rode out the uh, aftershocks. The house was an absolute mess in Lamert Park. And, uh, and then about, I don't know, about 10 minutes later, my little boy who was four said, Daddy, can I go back to sleep? And I said, <laughs> sure, baby, go back to sleep. And he just knocked out and we spent two days cleaning up the house. But it was good time because my dad was a building contractor and so it was usually not much work after the holidays but he was swamped with work so oh, we kept work busy and we repaired many many homes and uh uh you know do what we could to help around the community so it was quite a time my, my son henry who's a painter has done a whole series on it he still remembers it so vividly wow that mark thank you for sharing that and please wish him well from us, uh, for us. We appreciate it very much. Uh, and unfortunately, I don't have time to take Shabazz's call in Inglewood, but let me share Shabazz's comment. He said, at the time I was living with my mother, what I remember is our duplex felt like it was on wheels, rolling back and forth. Also, there was the sound of, of a wave or explosion. Found out later it was the on-ramp that collapsed. Yeah, Shabazz, I'm glad you raised the sounds because that, to me... There are so many different sounds that we had that were, that were outside in the world or inside where you lived and, and the feelings you said, like being on wheels. Uh, the memories of this are so vivid for those of us that experienced it 30 years ago. It's like it wasn't that long ago. Paul and Diamond Bar said, I'm an urban planner. I've worked in different cities. I drove around after the earthquake to look at damage, and I went to a Costco, and the storage pallets were all down and mangled. A reminder, if you feel an earthquake, get out of those areas with things that can fall on you. They need to have more regulation. Carmen and Covina said, I used to work in San Gabriel. When I got there, one of my co-workers told us her husband had a heart attack during the earthquake. Unfortunately, due to the chaos, they had difficulty getting him the care he needed, and he passed away. Carmen, thank you for sharing that. Just a reminder of what the huge toll was, the cost in human life. 
uh, and in way of life for so many people. Thank you for sharing your memories of the Northridge quake 30 years ago today from all of us Air Talk. Have a good rest of the day. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.